This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. The 2018 National Teacher of the Year gave President Trump a stack of letters written by her refugee and immigrant students. Then the online hate started. Plus a clash over free speech in schools. Our teachers say a student who wears a pro-border wall t-shirt shouldn't have to take it off, but other students should be allowed to debate and criticize it. Those stories plus the surprising trend of students bullying themselves online. And of course, we end with kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Rebecca McIntosh, what do you teach? I teach students in an elementary program at our alternative school. Jason Stiligo, what do you teach? I am a high school honors and AP science teacher. And Lynn Shipley, back for a second round, joining us again. What do you teach? I teach computers and business education at a middle school. And Rebecca, Lynn, and Jason are all three educators at public schools in the Kansas City metro area. Let's start with our first segment. At the White House last month, the 2018 National Teacher of the Year, Mandy Manning, knew she would get what she describes as a very, very brief moment with President Trump. So she tried to make the most of it. After being given her Crystal Apple Award, Manning handed the president a small stack of handwritten letters from her students. In those letters, the students described what it is like to arrive in the United States and the challenges faced by new immigrants. She teaches at a newcomer center at Joel E. Ferris High School in Spokane, Washington. And Mandy Manning joins us now by phone. Ms. Manning, thanks for coming on and and speaking with No Wrong Answers. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. I'll start with this. Few teachers, I think, will ever get to meet President Trump or any president for that matter. So I just wonder what that experience going to the White House was like. Well, I think anytime you have a chance to go to the White House, it's an honor and a privilege. Just to be in that environment is very overwhelming. Just the honor of being there was tremendous, truly tremendous. And I think a lot of people were talking about the the fact that you um, used a bit of your time um, in meeting President Trump. Um, and again, as you said, it was very brief, but um, you gave him letters written by your students, and your students are uh, refugees and, and first-generation immigrants who, who come to this country and, and go to Ferris High School in Spokane, Washington. So pretty much all your students um, are new arrivals in some way or another. And so how did you conceive of this idea of, of giving the president letters written by your students? Well, actually, um, one of the state teachers of the year last year had this idea. And she had personally handed the president some letters from her students last year. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is such a lovely idea. And especially knowing that I was the national teacher of the year, I was like, well, maybe maybe he'll actually read them. Plus, you know, how do you pass up an opportunity for your kids to actually say in their own words the messages that they want to send? Right. I mean, I seem, to, I seem to remember when I was in high school having assignments where I wrote a letter to the president. But, yeah, it's, it's very different when you know it's yeah. going to be given to him. So, I guess I know student privacy issues might be, uh, you know, a thing. But can you still give us an insight into maybe some specific things that your students wrote or wanted to write about? Yeah. So one of my students who is from uh, Uganda, 
he wrote a poem. He decided that he wanted to write a poem. And the poem was all about his journey um, in life, essentially. And it talked about how life was before when he was in refugee camps and he was struggling and his family didn't always have enough to eat and he felt hopeless. And then he continued on to talk about how that changed when he came to the United States because he felt that he was now in a place where he could have hope to be someone. And, I mean, that just breaks your heart right there. But Because I know the struggles that they go through once they actually arrive here as well because it's not all milk and honey, like we like to believe. There's a quite a struggle once they arrive here as well. And then there were other students who talked about some things that have been troubling in the last couple of years. But one girl's letter in particular was quite powerful. Um, talked about the language the president has used in the past to describe people from her country and how that has impacted her because people now feel free to say terrible things to her because the president himself called people from her her nation essentially trash. And so she asked that he understand his position and that he really take care with the language he uses because it influences other people. Questions? You bet. I have so many. This is Rebecca Mandy. And I want to thank you for that day being an advocate for at-risk groups that you represented You wore buttons that day for the Women's March and our LGBTQ kids. And I can't tell you what that meant to my students because we talked about it and we looked at it. That had a tremendous impact in a way that I hope you know happened. But I also know that you faced an unbelievably tremendous amount of negative feedback on social media. What have you, how have you worked with your students? Because I know they've seen that as well. Um, Mm -hmm. what, What lessons are you teaching with with that tremendous, it was an overwhelming amount of just hatred and vitriol that was directed toward you. Mm-hmm. So how are you processing yeah. that with your kids? To be quite honest, you know, this is this was new for me, but for many of our students, particularly our LGBTQ plus students and immigrant refugee students, encountering hate is not something that's new for them. So really, we processed it in that I have received so much more love and support than I have negative responses. And so I always really focus, try to help my kids focus on that because I have received personal mail, over 128 postcards and then like a hundred letters and in support with only two of those that were actually mailed to me being hateful. And I think sometimes online we can feel like it's overwhelming because it's just we're inundated. And in that first few days afterwards, I mean, my Facebook page, because I had had it open, because I was like, well, you know, I'm the state teacher of the year. I'm the national teacher of the year. I need to have my stuff public because I'm a public figure. Um, And now I've realized that, no, Facebook is not something that you want to have public. I think the biggest message, and I've talked to the video productions teacher at my school about developing like a maybe a little mini documentary about, for lack of a better word, fake news, because most of the vitriol that I encountered was due to this expertly edited video that was out there that made it look like, I think the title was something like, President Honors Teacher of the Year, and she bashes him at every turn. 
And it like really made it look like I just snubbed him left and right. Like I refused to shake his hand and this and that. And I was, and that wasn't true because I was very careful when I went to the white house that I was trying to be as gracious and polite as possible because I believe that the message about connection and um, experiencing things outside of understanding is so important. And I didn't want to give anyone the opportunity or the excuse to not listen to that message. I just think we need to recognize that this is our the reality for our students. Every single day, they're encountering these kinds of things online. And it seems overwhelming to us because we are older and new to this platform. And they, I mean, look at the Parkland kids, the Marjorie Stoneman kids. They encounter way worse hate than me. And they hold their heads up and they just keep on keeping on. Mandy, this is Jason. We've spent countless hours... Uh, discussing Betsy DeVos here on the podcast. And I was wondering <laughs> countless, if you, uh, countless hours, countless Jason, hours. make it sound like it's drudgery. <laughs> uh, I was wondering if you had the opportunity to speak with Betsy. And I if did. so, if you were able to advocate for our, how you're able to advocate for our public schools, and especially for our, our immigrant kids and our refugees. My first encounter with Betsy DeVos was when we went to our listening session. The purpose was that we would share with her and she would listen. Um, there's 55 of, of us state teachers a year, so it was quite a big room. And so I can understand that she maybe was a little bit intimidated because that's a lot of students, or a lot of teachers, most of whom are public school teachers. And I have to say that after we left that listening session, it was a little bit disappointing because everybody was pouring their hearts out, explaining how some of the policies that are, that are being proposed through the current um, Department of Education, how those impact our, our school system negative, in a negative way and how that impacts our students. She just was very, while it appeared that she was listening, she still repeated her messages, like her talking points. Didn't matter what what anybody would say, she would come back with something that supported her agenda, and so that was disheartening, you know, because we wanted we thought this was going to be an opportunity to really have her listen, and it didn't feel that she had listened. Lynn Shipley, you had a question. Uh, yes, Mandy, I was uh, thinking about your students and the resilience in which they have shown through their letters mm-hmm. and just the act of coming here. Have you looked at putting together any type of maybe book or lesson uh, that's available nationally or through your webpage or anything like that that can offer teachers the ability to work with students who at every level come here and show a a real type of resilience, which is a a big movement right now with our students? Well, I am definitely expanding my own personal blog, which is themannymanning.com and the Teaching Fearless. Uh, to to include some stuff about my students. but So when I have my kids, they're so brand new, it's hard for them to articulate what they've been through. I can only, they only can focus on, you know, learning English and trying to, trying to adapt to their new environment. And I know that across the nation, there are already many, many books out there that highlight student stories and help teachers to see some of the experiences that these kids have had. Leah Jay, who is the North Dakota, 2018 North Dakota State Teacher of the Year, her students put out a book every year. And there's a group who is putting together these books across the nation. And I have talked to Leah about 
connecting some of the other English language uh, development teachers here in Spokane who teach those upper level kids to then make their own book. Uh, you mentioned when you were talking about the letters that your students wrote, that one of the the girls who wrote the letter um, did mention, uh, while also thanking President Trump, that you know some of the the rhetoric he has used over the past couple of years has been hurtful to her and um, has made her feel anxious and fearful. I wonder, have your students, um, have their feelings about the country they've come to changed? Have they have they um, expressed or displayed more overt anxiety and, and, and fear? We talk about that a lot on this show, about how our teachers see marginalized or minority groups um, showing a little bit more of those feelings overtly. Um, since President Trump took office because of some of the rhetoric that he and his campaign, when he was campaigning, used. What's your experience with that? Um, yes, they have. Because I've, we've had so many kids encounter more overt discrimination and racism in the past year and a half than we have um, previously. And so they, they have. Like, and they're, but the thing is, is that they're more willing to talk about it. And... And, and explain what they've been through and experience and get help. And so we've had kids that have encountered uh, racism in the way of, you know, telling them to go back to Africa or just, I don't know. Um, we've also not just go back to Africa, but there's a lot of rhetoric around uh, negative racist rhetoric around Muslims. And so, so our Muslim communities are struggling more. We we see more and more girls not wearing their hijab, even though they really believe in wearing their hijab, because they encounter so much, uh, so many negative comments just because they're wearing their hijab. And so, yeah, I mean, there's they are they are adjusting and gaining different perspectives, but they're still hopeful, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's clear in the way that you talk that you see um, your role in this position as National Teacher of the Year as, um, if I may say, a political role. You've talked about teacher walkouts and the student-led activism around gun control. And, and we talk a lot about on this show just kind of teachers trying to balance the idea of, of being political agents, but also being a teacher as well and trying to, to remain as objective as possible in the classroom. What do you see as the, as the political role of teachers in this current national environment? So I have learned in my capacity as state teacher of the year and then also in my capacity now as national teacher of the year that federal policy can have impact on our classrooms, but it's not in the way that we believe. Like, we think that federal policy happens and then it dictates everything that, that happens and it's the thing that puts the handcuffs on us in the classroom. But what I'm actually seeing is that, so federal policy happens and it's usually fairly broad. And then the state will then hear from advocacy groups across the state and they will develop policy. But still, the state policy tends to be a bit broad. It's not necessarily very prescriptive. But then what happens is that policy comes down to the, to the district level, and that's when we really see the impact, because it's up to the district to determine what that policy means and then to implement it however they see as the most effective way to implement that policy. And 
that's when it becomes very prescriptive and can sometimes feel like handcuffs. Whether we want it or not, our positions as classroom teachers, is it's a political position because it's, we're the ones that know the kids. We're the ones that know what needs to happen in our classrooms and in our school buildings and in our districts. And so it is on us to ensure that we are making our voices heard and that we're helping not just lending our voice and our stories, but actually sitting at the table and actively engaging on how policy impacts our classrooms. And that has to happen at the district level, because that is really where we are seeing the implementation of policy. And oftentimes policy is not what we believe it is. At the banquet honoring you as the Washington State Teacher of the Year. This was last year, actually. Um, so you've kind of been going through this this uh, application process for a while. But last year, the Washington State Teacher of the Year banquet, you told the crowd something that you say you tell your students a lot. And I wanted to know if, if you might be able to share that with us before you go. What do you tell your students? Be fearless and be kind and get to know your neighbors. We need to be building bridges and not fences. We need to be reaching across cross difference and finding connection with one another. That's the only way that our communities will be strong and safe and connected. We have to we have to find it in our hearts, the compassion to be willing to not tolerate other people, but to accept people who are different than us. Well, it's it's only the very beginning of, of saying that a lot, <laughs> Mandy Manning. Mm-hmm. You're gonna you have a very busy schedule ahead. I've read somewhere that you have about 150 speaking dates over the next year or so, both in the United States and abroad. So, Mandy Manning, the 2018 National Teacher of the Year from Spokane, Washington. We thank you so much for for joining joining us and talking with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been such an honor. Thank you. And good luck. Thanks. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Let's move on to another topic that in some ways is related to what we were just talking about with Mandy Manning. According to the Oregonian newspaper, a judge recently granted a temporary restraining order allowing a senior at Liberty High School in Hillsboro, that's a suburb of Portland, Oregon, to wear a T-shirt with a message supporting President Trump's border wall. The student and his lawyers argued successfully that school officials violated his free speech rights when, back in January, they ordered him to remove or cover up the shirt. Incidentally, the student chose to go home instead, which counted as a suspension at the time. The school argued that the T-shirt created what it called a hostile learning environment, noting that a third of the school's students at Liberty High, where this took place, are of Hispanic descent. To be clear, this is what the shirt said. Donald J. Trump Border Wall Construction Company. The wall just got 10 feet taller. So for my teachers here, if a student walked into your classroom wearing a shirt with that message, what would you do? I would not do anything. Unbeknownst to many, believe in um, almost full free speech, even for students at that level. Now, if there is a student that walked in with a shirt on the opposite side of the spectrum, I would also uh, expect that student to be tolerant of the other shirt. So uh, free speech is one of those things that... I believe should take place almost at every level with the exception of danger. 
I, w- I would make sure that he knew what he was wearing, that he understood his position, and uh, would let it go with that. So you might not even you might not even say anything directly to him. Just kind of see how he how he acts with it on. Yes, because the the fact is that it's a possibility he has set himself up to. Uh, be ridiculed by other students, and he has to allow that to take place also. Uh, any, any other free speech purists at the table? Mm-hmm. For me, I would just pull the kid aside and have a conversation with him privately, not uh, not out in the classroom, just to kind of gauge his ideas. I, I think the uh, oftentimes we, we forget to have conversations with our kids around politics or to understand their viewpoints of where they're coming from. Uh, and oftentimes it helps us as educators get a better feel of the climate of their class and the climate of our classroom. Uh, and I don't, I don't think I would tell the kid to, I would not tell the kid to turn the shirt inside out. I would be interested to hear his or her thoughts on why they bought the shirt or why that shirt was given to them and why they felt the need to display that in public just in order to get a better understanding of my children. Well, and I think... In- as in all things in our classrooms, you have to have the context. This doesn't happen in isolation. It's not a kid you don't know coming into a situation you don't know. What is the, what is the environment that this is occurring in, especially at, at this high school with, with such a large Hispanic population? What is the relationship there? What are the conversations that are happening? Is this a kid that I've had this conversation with before? What do I think is going to be the reaction from classmates? You know, as, as a bigger holistic picture of, of the school community, what do we already know about what's happening? I, I recognize we're not going to have all the facts, but I do think that the difference is being an African-American teacher, I would look at it in a different way, and I would not necessarily pull the student aside. I would probably use it as a teachable moment for the whole class. If that student knew what the topic was, if he wore that shirt deliberately, if he was making a stance it then becomes up to me to empower and enable our other students to also be able to have that conversation. And that's where you make a safe environment for the classroom that all of these conversations can take place. His dissenting view, other, other views, and uh, provide a level of safety for your students who might be disenfranchised. I agree with that completely, mm-hmm. Lynn. That's really important. You know, I, I came up in the 70s, and so there were a lot of things that we were told not to do. With that said, I believe that we have got to help our kids develop some sense of self-efficacy. And if they are really, really offended, we need to provide them or give them the tools to be able to defend themselves verbally and to be able to combat some of those things. I've, I've, I'm concerned that we're raising a lot of kids that just something is said and they just they just fall and, and they don't know how to pick themselves up. So, so you're saying them, so you're saying that if. If a kid walks in a shirt with a pro border wall shirt and another kid is offended by that and like wants to disengage from a class debate or wants to put their head down, you, you Lynn, would want to push that kid to say, hey, you mean if you don't agree with this, step up. Yes. Yeah. That's the other side of free speech. You have dissenters and you have uh, people that are, are, are pro. You have to be able to articulate where you are in the conversation. Does it matter if, if it's, a, if it's a, a topic that can, I guess, and there's a lot of topics like this, but a, a topic that can be extremely personal to a student where, you know, like may, they might be expressing anxiety that their, that their family members might be deported. Um, does that factor into how far you would press a student? Definitely. I think everybody here, I mean, you're, 
based on what you've said on this episode and in past episodes, your political cards are on the table. But I wonder, is a situation where a kid wears a pro-border wall shirt to school, is that any different from a kid who wears a March for Our Lives shirt to school? No. I think we're all no. looking at each other, and I think we're all going to say no. 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 Yeah, no. no. There's Not no difference there. And, and it's going to lead to conversation, and you're going to have those conversations. It's no different than wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt or a Blue Lives Matter shirt or the, the various things that have taken place is we have forgotten how to have conversations. And it is important that our schools are lessons in how to have conversations, like everyone has said, to learn how to dissent, to learn how to be respectful, to learn how to, you don't have to agree, but you do have to be respectful in how you listen to other people's uh, lives and, and what's important to them. And as a society, we've become so, we become such protectionists. We, we, keep, we keep trying to limit and limit and limit because we don't want to have any type of volatility in our lives. But, but we have to also realize that we have to have conversation around uh, all of these topics. And the more that we, we constrict and the more that we limit, uh, the less broad we become in our understanding of the way the world operates. You know, the dichotomy here I find interesting because it sounds like from the discussion you're having that you all you know, advocate for a schoolhouse in which... Um, there are, there is a diversity of opinion, maybe even a very kind of tense diversity of, of opinion on political issues where students and teachers are allowed to kind of work things out um, in a constructive, but yet it could also be pretty emotional and, and tense way. At the same time, there is this kind of bigger presumption in larger society that schools, and maybe this might be more applied to higher education, but still like academic settings are, have become this very kind of brittle, fragile, safe space for snowflakes. But the, 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 the conversation that I hear you all having is that, in fact, um, as educators, as people who are in charge of these settings, you actually feel the responsibility to kind of make it an uncomfortable space at times. I think that's fair. And I think it becomes, once again, the, the responsibility of the public school to, to do this training, um, to do this learning. It may or may not be our responsibility, but I think there are a lot of different ways to skin this cat. And so I'm coming from a classroom where my students wear uniforms. Nobody's going to have a border wall t-shirt in my building, K-12. So we have to have these conver- do these learnings in a different way. And I'd like to say, I, I work at a school that is 90% minority, we have several teachers that were very pro-Trump. And the kids, the students would see the staff have very high-energy conversations <laughs> <That's> <laughs> regarding, regarding uh, the, uh, the presidential race two years ago. But we did it respectfully. And what they saw was in the end, we were still a staff. And so they sort of took that away. And they, and they knew the teachers that were pro-Trump. And they knew the teachers that were not. But they... Uh, they never treated any of us differently, and those teachers never lost respect of the students. Uh, well, for what it's worth, uh, an addendum to this story, the student who wore this uh, pro-border wall shirt in Oregon has, of course, now been told by a judge he can wear it to school, but he, he does graduate just a few days after the taping of this podcast. So that particular debate might become moot in just a little <laughs> bit. Our final topic before kids these days, we wanted to highlight some recent research that may add a bit to the discussion we had last episode about rising rates of teen suicide and suicidal ideation. If you haven't listened to that discussion, I highly recommend you go back and do that. Anyway, a study published late last year in the Journal of Adolescent Health shows that a small but significant subset of teens are digitally self-harming. That is, anonymously posting derogatory bullying messages to themselves online and on social media. The researchers found in a survey of some 6,000 American middle and high school students, about 6% were basically 
cyberbullying themselves. Ed Week points out schools are generally unaware of digital self-harming, and even if they are, find it hard to identify the kids who are digitally self-harming because it's typically done anonymously. I guess for the teachers here, is this a new concept for you? Uh, Have you had digital self-harmers at your school that you were aware of? I have. And what you said earlier about us being aware of it is spot on in that it's usually something that other students have reported to us because we're not out there following the social media as much as we, we maybe should. Um, so unfortunately, yeah, it's kind of a new a new tool in that toolbox that's happening. Jason, Lynn, uh, surprising to you or digital self-harm, something you've encountered before? I had never heard of digital self-harm. And then I, then I started going into my own head about, okay, thinking about why you know, why would you do this digital self-harm? And then I thought about, well, cutting is like a visible representation of of marking your own body uh, in some form or another to show dissatisfaction with yourself or that you're going through depression or you have anxiety or that there are these ill will feelings. And then I thought about how society currently is shifting, shifting to a, a more digital and social media platform. As I, as I thought more about this digital self-harm, I kept thinking that instead of people making visible signs, which in the 80s and 90s was more prone for people to see that this is now a mechanism uh, or maybe not, hopefully not a last ditch effort, but but an effort for that other people to understand that, hey, um, Susie is writing this stuff on her profile. We're seeing it on her profile. And it's, it's, it's her way of notifying people that she's unhappy with her own life. Uh, Well, I will say for all the behaviors that you all are describing, I I will bring a little bit of context to it. Uh, Dana Boyd is a researcher at Microsoft Research, and she's actually the person who coined the term digital self-harm back in 2010. And she says there are several potential reasons behind why students do it. And I guess you might be able to say this about other self-harming behaviors as well. But um, she says it could be a cry for help. It could be um, actually maybe somewhat surprisingly, a student wanting to look cool. Um, if people are bullying you online, that may uh, give you a little bit more cachet socially. Um, or a student um, simply trying to trigger compliments or sympathy from other students. So does, does, does any of that sound familiar to you in, in the real-world circumstances in which you've encountered? It absolutely does, because the, the function of, of these behaviors is that validation, that looking for attention, that looking for normalization of these negative feelings that these kids are having. Because we're not able to give kids the appropriate coping skills for whatever negative experiences or the the traumas that they're dealing with, it it makes kind of a perfect sense linearly, like Jason said, as we move digitally, that it would be another outlet for that that attention-seeking, that validation, that looking for that social reinforcement for those negative feelings that these kids are having. And, and a lot of our kids that have, have experienced trauma, they need that adrenaline, that waking up to continue to happen in order to, to be alert. And so that self, self-simulation you know, keeps that heightened level of activity mentally for them um, and actually is a coping mechanism for them. Is digital self-harm in, in some ways more, I guess... Is it more damaging than cutting just because it's so public and it's out there? And it's, is, is, is the fact that it's on social media, does it impact in any way how you would respond to it? As opposed to, you know, some, a, a, a more th- physical behavior like cutting. I think it can be more damaging potentially just because of the wider audience. And you don't have to look very far to, to look at the social media profiles of 
school shooters, that they were sending signals clearly, digitally, um, of their of where their mental state was. Um, so I think potentially it is dangerous in that the, the audience is so wide. I also look at the fact that kids have two personalities today. They have a physical personality and then they have a online personality. You have to be able to address both of those. If they're physically cutting, that's one thing. If they're digitally cutting, that's one thing. But they both need to be addressed. Well, we'll leave it there. We'll continue to t- talk about uh, mental health issues for sure. It's uh, two weeks in a row. I just wanted to kind of use that conversation as a follow-up to the conversation we had last week. Stay tuned. We're going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed this conversation, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, even though you're out on summer break, Lynn, what were your kids into before they went on summer break? They were into having field day and a picnic. Of course they were. (laughs) Of course they were. What are the big games in field day nowadays? Uh, we still play uh, kickball. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> at, at Nothing school. changed. That's good. <laughs> That's it. That's the big tug one. of war. <laughs> we did not play tug oh, of war okay. this year, but uh, kickball is our big thing. Dodge, dodgeball. Dodge no, ball. nobody plays dodgeball anymore, no. Mr. Palmer. I was teaching to the very last day, everyone. Of course you oh. were. Right. You probably gave a test, didn't you? I did. You, I gave a final. Of yeah. course oh. you did. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So kickball, field day. Of course, that's always, this time of year, that's always what kids are into. Uh, Rebecca, what are you kids into? I, you know, it's been about a week since the kids have been on break for me, but I have had the first official um, seeing teacher outside the school encounter, (laughs) which is always significant. So, yes, um, Miss Snackintosh does eat Mexican food, and she was seen in a restaurant, you know, in civilian (laughs) clothes, in a civilian context, and that's always very startling for a student. And this was, so a student saw you eating Mexican food. What oh, was yes. the what was the exchange? Um, oh, they they don't approach. No, it's a stand <laughs> it's like, and stand and look and maybe point. And, no, we all respect the boundaries there. That that's just out of context, and we must respect that. It's like watching a lion in the zoo. Very much. You don't so. want to get too close to the very fence. much. <laughs> yes. Uh, Jason, what are your kids into for the summer? Actually, a lot of my kids are excited for summer school. Ooh, I know that makes yeah, sound, that may uh. sound a little odd, but I teach in a district that's 85% free and reduced lunch, so it, it's an opportunity for them to have breakfast. It's an opportunity for them to have lunch. Uh, gives them a safe space to go, and so a lot of kids are actually like, I can't wait for summer school to start, and I get another four weeks, and I get to do weight training and gym, and um, I get to be around my friends, and I, I get to socialize. And so they were actually really excited about summer school. And we often forget that, right? We often forget that summer school can be that type of outlet for students. Well, thanks to our teachers this week who are all on summer break now, right? Woohoo! Yes. yes. Rebecca McIntosh, Lynn Shipley, and Jason Staliga. Yes. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio where we tape. And remember kids, be nice to your teachers. <laughs>